Good evening and welcome to the Seymour Centre for our Sydney Ideas talk with Robert Fisk, presented with Glee Books. I'm Anne Mossop from the Seymour Centre. Sydney Ideas is a new program of lectures, talks and forums hosted by the University of Sydney, at which mobile phone ringing is strictly forbidden. It'll be officially launched on April the 3rd with a talk by sociologist Frank Ferreira, the author of The Politics of Fear, Beyond Left and Right, Where Have All the Intellectual gone, Intellectuals Gone, and Paranoid Parenting, among other books. His talk is entitled, Can Our Belief in Humanity Survive the 21st Century? Although that will be the official launch of the series next month, we couldn't resist the opportunity to include Robert Fisk in our program. In 1998, I was in Beirut and asked him to come and speak at the Sydney Writers' Festival. World events intervened in the following years, but he did get to Australia some months ago and spoke for the University Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies. He's here tonight prior to a visit to Writers' Week at the Adelaide Festival, and these recent visits have coincided with the publication of his new book, The Great War for Civilization. As one of the world's best-known journalists, the work of Robert Fisk would be familiar to many of you a correspondent for The Times for many years and Middle East correspondent for The Independent since 1989, he spent more than 30 years reporting from conflict zones, Northern Ireland, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan and the Balkans, in the process winning the loyalty of readers and the recognition of his peers, witnessed by innumerable journalism awards. He's the author of books that include Pity the Nation, a landmark account of the Lebanese Civil War, first published in 1990. His new book, The Great War for Civilization: The, Conflict, the Conquest of the Middle East, looks at conflicts including Afghanistan, the Gulf War, the current invasion of, and occupation of Iraq in the context of his unique experience as a reporter, as well as with a broader historical view, going back to the end of the First World War to find the sources of current conflicts. The extent to which Robert Fisk is important to his readers is apparent when you visit the website of the independent newspaper. He's actually become a news category of his own. Americas, Asia, Australasia, Middle East, Robert Fisk. <laughs> Why does his writing matter to so many people around the world? His is an original voice, informed, independent and courageous. It gains him devoted readers as well as fierce critics. His background and track record give him a historical perspective and a level of analysis that is unique. His writing is vivid, passionate, what he sees comes alive. He's there on the spot. He doesn't let us forget the people involved and prevents his readers in the West from being able to see war as something that happens to nameless, faceless others. The title of his talk tonight is September 11, Ask How, But For God's Sake, Don't Ask Why. It'll be followed for some, with, by some time for questions from you and it's my great pleasure to hand over to Robert Fisk. Thank you, Anne. You're now my new public relations consultant. <laughs> as I said last time I was in Australia, when I was in Dublin, Ireland, giving a lecture, I said anyone whose mobile phone goes off while I'm speaking will be sold into slavery. And immediately a mobile phone went off. And it was mine, so you can keep your mobile phones on as far as I'm concerned. I talked 
a little bit about this same subject a few months ago in Australia, and for those of you of whom I know there are a few who were there then, I don't want to repeat myself. But my whole question about September 11, 2001, uh, immediately immersed me in a good deal of condemnation and criticism, because after 2001, we weren't supposed to ask why. Uh, I was crossing the Atlantic on September 11, uh, and uh, I was actually talking on the aircraft's uh, satellite phone to London, so you know I was traveling business class. And uh, they were telling me what was happening two aircraft into the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, one crashes in Pennsylvania. It clearly wasn't a tragedy. It was an attack. And I remember going up to the crew at the front of the aircraft and saying to them, you better know what's going on, and I think you better tell the pilot. And he came back, and we were discussing it, because I knew most of the crew, because I do this journey so much, so often. And one of the stewardesses said, there must have been many people involved. They must have done dummy runs. Where did the planes come from? And we didn't know at that stage whether the planes came from Europe, Latin America, we didn't know they were domestic flights. And the senior purser and I looked at each other, and we knew what we were asking. What about our plane? And the purser and I went round our aircraft looking for passengers we didn't like. <laughs> I found 13. <laughs> Three in business class. He found 14. They're all identical. Of course, they were all Muslims, weren't they? And I was suspicious of them because they had darker skins and they had worry beads and they were reading the Quran or maybe they were looking at me suspiciously because I was looking at them suspiciously. And when I got back to the front of the plane, I realized that in just a few seconds, Osama bin Laden, whom I know and whom I'm sure was behind the bombings, the attacks, he'd turned nice, friendly, liberal Bob into a racist. I was racially profiling my fellow passengers on that aircraft within three minutes. And I began to believe then that the purpose was not to turn Muslims against the West. There aren't many Christians left to say Christianity, but Muslims in the West. I think it was meant to turn the innocent against the innocent. And so asking the question why became very important for me. The moment I arrived back in Europe and saw the Twin Towers and that biblical, appalling, horrific international crime against humanity falling to the ground, my mobile phone was going like a grasshopper. NBC in America, CBC in Canada, ABC in Australia. Each person, I said, but why? Why? We know who did it. 19 Arabs who called themselves Muslims. We know how. Box cutters, airplanes, tall buildings. But why? I was on an Irish radio show and was being absolutely assaulted by a Harvard professor who shall remain nameless. Yeah, it was Alan Dershowitz, of course. <laughs> who was saying merely to ask the question why means you are anti-American, pro-terrorist, and being anti-American is the same as being anti-Semitic. I've got a copy of this. It's all real. So in other words, to ask the question why, you were a Nazi. Very odd situation. If you have a crime in the street in, well, not Sydney, no, in Melbourne, <laughs> the first thing the police do when they turn up is look for a motive. But when we had an international crime against humanity, the one thing we were not allowed to do was look for a motive. Like, um, they're Arabs. That means they come from the Middle East. Is there a problem out there? Huh? <laughs> Writing my book, which was a very depressing experience, because I was pushing together everything I'd seen and everything that goes back to the story of my father, who was a soldier in the First World War, the war that produced the modern Middle East and Yugoslavia and the border of Northern Ireland. I've spent my entire professional career in all these places watching the people in those borders burn. 
you know, you, you, you had, I had to say reading this, you know, pushing it together, I became, I, I saw this immense world of injustice and suffering and genocide and ethnic cleansing and torture and secret police dungeons. And I must say, given our constant interference in the Middle East, I'm amazed that Muslims have been so restrained. Very depressing book. Very depressing book to write. Very distressing. And my young researcher came down who went through 328,000 documents, papers, pages, notebooks, photographs, films of mine over the past 30 years and one day and said, Robert, you've got to get out of here. We're going for a walk on the beach. We're going for a pint of beer in the pub. Get out. That's how bad it was. It was the story of my curse, this book. But when you go back, when I look back now, all the signs of something to come were there. Palestine, Chechnya, Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, now Iraq. And for 30 years, I've been a witness to almost all these tragedies. So what I want to focus on tonight is what is our responsibility as journalists? Why didn't we warn you? Because we knew. We knew. Three years before September 11, Victoria Fontaine, my researcher, found a tape of me on Canadian television in Toronto. And the television presenter, but surely things are getting better. There's peace between Israel and Egypt, peace between Israel and Jordan. Optimism is always hinged on the security and peace of Israel. You notice not on everybody else. And I said, you're wrong. I said, the Middle East is on fire. There is going to be some kind of explosion. I hear myself say it. I don't know what I meant. I don't know if I meant a physical explosion or a political explosion, but I meant something. And many of us in the Middle East, we felt this. We talked about it. I live in, in the Muslim world. I live in the Muslim part of Beirut. My drivers are Muslim. My landlords are Muslim. My grocers are Muslim. And it wasn't that they came and said something's coming. It's just you felt it. The way they would talk. The way people would regard you in a shop. What people would say about you in the back of a shop, not realizing you understood Arabic. You began to realize that something was there. And, and, and when I go back through what we wrote at the time, or what my colleagues wrote, I am amazed to see what we got away with. Look at the semantics which continue now, where the occupied territories are referred to as the disputed territories. First person to bring that up was Colin Powell. He told all American missions, consulates, and embassies in the Middle East, they were to refer to the West Bank and Gaza as disputed, not as occupied. Then we have colonies, which are now called settlements and occasionally called neighborhoods. Nice, friendly neighborhoods like North Sydney, right? You see how the, and the wall, the wall which is taller than the Berlin Wall, is a security barrier. And you see what's happening. If a, now I'm against violence for any reason ever against anyone. But if a child throws a stone at an Israeli soldier in Ramallah, but we are told it's just disputed territory, something which can be solved in the courts, which can be solved over a cup of tea, and a, why is this child throwing stones, or why is this man shooting a gun? You see, when you call it disputed rather than occupied, you make the Palestinians a generically violent people, which they're not any more than the Israelis are, any more than I am or you. Once we call a colony a colony, you can see, since it's built for Jews and Jews only on Arab land, I'm talking about the vast areas like Male Adumim, east of Jerusalem, you can understand Arab feelings about it. It doesn't mean you want to justify violence, but at least you can see why it happens, the why question. But the moment they're called neighborhoods, well, why would anyone use violence against a neighborhood? Why would you ever object to a security barrier 
It's there for security. The fact that the wall cuts right through Arab land and takes acre after acre of it is not part of that narrative. And undoing the narrative of history as laid down to us by our presidents and our generals, and I'm afraid our journalists, is one of the things I try to do in my new book. Hold on a second. Challenge authority. It's not like that. You know, if you want to see a typical example, I'll show you one, of what happens in the cozy relationship that exists between journalists and power. I'm talking particularly about American journalism. Uh, after I last came to Australia, I, I did the American tour for the American edition of my book, which is identical, but in smaller print. And, <laughs> but it's all there. It's not cut. As opposed to the French edition, where I had to take three chapters out because they don't do hardback books in France anymore, and they can only put 1,000 pages in a paperback. So you could see me. I had to tear out the Algerian chapter, tear out the chapter on arms. <laughs> anyway, you've, if you buy it here, you've got the lot. But anyway, I was giving a talk in L.A., Wednesday, November the 16th, I'm just sitting over my coffee and starting to cough over it, and you'll see why. Here is an example of what's wrong with American journalism. The need always to use power to support your story. You, if you want to see how American journalism works, watch... No, I don't advise you to. Um, if you have to watch CNN, watch a presidential press conference. Watch Bush. Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President. Yes, John. Yes, Bob. You see? That's how it works, this osmotic, parasitic relationship between journalism and power. Anyway, I pick up my Los Angeles Times in the morning. Here it is, the real thing, see? I'll give you the little bit of uh, background so you understand why it makes me infuriated. The headline, in a battle of wits, Iraq's insurgency mastermind, I love masterminds, stays a step ahead of the United States. By Josh Meyer and Mark Mazzetti, Washington. Not exactly Baghdad, but not bad. And the story begins... Despite the recent arrest of one of his would-be suicide bombers in Jordan and some top aides in Iraq, insurgency mastermind Abu Musab Zarqawi, if he's alive, has eluded capture, U.S. authorities say, because his network has a much better intelligence gathering operation than they do. <laughs> well, hold on a minute. That's news, huh? But here's how they source the story. This is page one, column one. U.S. officials said Tuesday. Column two, officials said U.S. authorities say, U.S. officials said, wait for it, it gets worse. Page A10, I love the A, B, C columns in American papers, A10, here we go. Several U.S. officials familiar with the units said, those officials said in interviews, the officials confirmed, thank God for that. <laughs> American officials complained, they said, U.S. officials stressed, column three, U.S. authorities believe, said one senior U.S. intelligence official, U.S. officials said, Jordanian officials said, well, that's a change for a while. <laughs> column four, several, it gets worse, several U.S. officials said, U.S. officials said, column five, the American officials said, column six, officials say, say U.S. officials, but U.S. officials said, one U.S. counterterrorism official said, welcome to American journalism, ladies and gentlemen. You see there's a problem there, isn't there? There is a problem there. You, you did spot it, didn't you? Now let me give you another example, a little bit of a racist problem in reporting. The Associated Press. A military jury ordered a reprimand. This is January 24 this year. This is, this is um, just over a month ago. A military jury ordered a reprimand, but no jail time Monday, for an army interrogator convicted of negligent homicide. Yeah, think about that in the death of an Iraqi general who died after he stuffed him headfirst into a sleeping bag and sat on his chest. This is not a joke. This is the real thing. 
Mr. Welsoffer, this is the soldier who committed what I regard as murder, fought back tears. I deeply apologize, he said, if my action tarnished the soldiers serving in Iraq. You spot another little problem there, isn't there? But it got in the agency wire without any comment. It was quite normal, right? During the trial, prosecutors described a rogue interrogator, another bad apple among all the others, right, who became frustrated with Malhush, this is the general, refusal to answer questions and escalated his techniques. Yeah? From simple interviews to beatings to simulated drowning and finally to death. Well, there you go. Right? He did it in the presence of lower-ranking soldiers. In an email to a commander, Wellshofer wrote, this is the guy who killed him, that restrictions on interrogation techniques were impeding the army's ability to gather intelligence. The defense, by the way, argued the guy had a heart condition inside a sleeping bag upside down when someone was sitting on his chest, right? Officials believed Mohash, the general, had information that would, quote, break the back of the whole insurgency. Huh? He knew about 40,000 insurgents, this guy, inside the sleeping bag as he was being murdered. Absolutely astonishing. In none of these stories, oh, his wife Barbara, the, the wife of the guy who did the killing, testified she was worried about providing for their three children if her husband was sentenced to prison. But she said she was proud of him for contesting the case. I love him more for fighting this, she said, tears welling up in her eyes. They're both crying. He's always said that you need to do the right thing, and sometimes the right thing is the hardest thing to do. Torture's tough, huh? But you notice in these stories, not one person says, was the general married? Did he have a wife or a widow? Did he have children? No, they're not there. They don't exist because he's an Iraqi. Like all the Iraqis we report on, he doesn't have a number. We constantly report on each soldier that dies in Iraq, and we should. They deserve to be identified. The sergeants, the corporals, the ages, the widows, how many children. But not one Iraqi do, with you, do that to. When I go to the mortuary in August last year in Magdad, I am told I am not allowed to know the number of Iraqis who died in July because the Ministry of Health have been told by the Americans and British not to tell the press. Fortunately, the mortuary officials are friends of mine because I go there to count the corpses, many of them killed by death squads, hands tied behind their back, blindfolded, shot in the head, women too. And they let me look at the computer. 1,000 Iraqis died by violence last July alone in Baghdad, just in Baghdad. 1,000. That's on the official computer. That's the figure we're not supposed to see. Extrapolate that through all the other cities, Ramadi, um, Fallujah, Kirkuk, Mosul, Najaf, Kerbala, Basra. You must be talking about 3,000 a month, 36,000 a year. That 100,000 figure that Blair and Bush sneered at might be quite conservative. Look, 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 even at today's paper. I open my Sydney Morning Herald this morning, and I find the following. The Associated Press has got hold of 5,000 documents from Guantanamo under the Freedom of Information Act. In those documents... An Air Force colonel who is a judge, a judge of a British citizen, actually, called Feroz Ali Abbasi. Mr. Abbasi is pleading in the court, please give me the evidence you say you have against me. Please, under international law, I have a right to it. And what does the Air Force colonel say? Mr. Abbasi, this is official document. Mr. Abbasi, your conduct is unacceptable, and this is your final absolute warning. I do not care about international law. I do not want to hear the words international law again. We are not concerned about international law. Way down the story, this is. Huh? Not up here, but way down the story. It's a problem, isn't there? The end of the American dream. There it is. We don't even spot it in the headline. Well, I'm going to 
give you a little clip of film now so you can have some cinema instead of Bob. Unfortunately, Bob's on the film too. Um, a slightly younger Bob Fisk, I hate to say. I'm going to show you a clip of film um, taken in Bosnia. Way back in 1993, uh, I made a series of films for Channel 4 in Britain and Discovery Channel in the States. Uh, they're now together as a two-and-a-half-hour film. We made it on cinema film. We used real cinema film. It cost a million dollars. It was a lot of money in those days. And one of the sequences we did, we went to Bosnia. The war was still on in Bosnia. And I had earlier gone to a village called Chela, near Priador in, in, in western Bosnia, which was a Muslim village under Serb control. And the Serbs had introduced me to the imam, the, the Muslim priest in the village. And I'd had coffee in his home. Now, a year later, the independent sent me back to see what was happening in Chela. What, how was the imam? I'm going to show you a clip of film now, and you'll find out what happened. Uh, just before I do, as I walk into the mosque, this is something Victoria found out, we tracked down the day I walked into the mosque, which has just been burned and blown up. It was September the 11th, 1993. Listen to what I say when I walk into the mosque. I was just eight years too early. Pete, can we have that clip of film? Put the, and put the lights down. cleansing. How easily we reporters accepted this phrase. The Muslims who lived in these devastated homes were raped and murdered by the Serbs, not because they were ethnically different from their Serb attackers, but because the Serbs wanted the Muslims' land, and they got it. Our reports of their plunder made no difference. A year ago, the independent sent me into Serbian Bosnia to search for a village in which Muslims still lived. I found a village called Chela. It had a pretty mosque and a friendly imam who lived in a cottage next door. The Serbs promised to protect them. Now I was going back to see them again, accompanied by two watchful Serb policemen. I'm sure it's the mosque. I went in there before. Keep going, keep going. This, this I'm sure. Yes, I, I, rem I remember went going in here before. This is the mosque. Right. <clears throat> I see the problem here. Yeah. Can you ask the policeman what happened to this yes, mosque? I mean, I, I, last time I was here, I walked inside it. It was uh, ordinary. What happened, Kathy? Okay. Can you ask him? On the It's uh. No, no, no picture. Part of a school book. I knew what had happened. How long would these Muslims put up with this sort of violence? How can I forget the place where I work, the Middle East? When Muslims there hit out at the West, we say we don't understand them. Mindless terrorism is the phrase we like to use about them. And every time I see things like this, I wonder what the Muslim world has in store for us. Maybe my reports should always end with the same phrase, watch out. Well, no more mosque. It had been blown up with explosives. No one would say who did it, and there wasn't any point in asking the Serb police. 
And here was the cottage in which the Muslim Imam and his family had given me coffee just a year ago. They had disappeared, ethnically cleansed. Only a few days ago, no one would say where they were. But I recognised them from the old family snapshots. These were the people who gave me coffee a year ago. To this day, I don't know where they are. The end of the line for the Muslims of Bosnia. Despite our millions of words, despite the pictures of all our television colleagues, have we journalists made the slightest difference to this tragedy? These men and women were driven out of their homes this morning. Muslims, dispossessed, homeless, betrayed. Why did they throw the Muslims out of Bosnia? Why have they done this to you? Can I ask you why are you leaving Bosnia? In the Middle East, as well as Bosnia, I've spent 17 years writing about these people. It would be nice to think the world listened to us journalists occasionally, but governments have grown used to ignoring our reports. If you still believe in the new world order, you shouldn't be watching this. Governments want us to think about peace in the Middle East. They'd rather we never saw this, never wrote about it. They'd rather we shut up. Sadiqa, this is you? This is you. And this? Your husband. He's dead. And and this here is 
This is your yes. mother here who's sitting behind you now. Yes. What do you think when you look back at these days now? For these Muslims, this is their moment of despair, their day of catastrophe. An hour ago, they were Bosnian Muslims in their own homes. Now they are refugees. Just a little local train to take them north, to a refugee camp, another country, to another world, to be scattered to the ends of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, the Arab-Jewish struggle from the conflicting British promises of independence for the Arab states and the support for the Jewish national home in Palestine to the establishment of the State of Israel on Palestinian land following the Jewish Holocaust in the Second World War is an epic tragedy whose effects have spread around the world and continue to poison the lives not only of the participants but our entire Western political and military policies towards the Middle East and the Muslim lands. The narrative of events, both through Arab and Israeli eyes, and through the often biased reporting and commentaries of journalists and historians since 1948, now forms libraries of information and disinformation through which the reader may wander with incredulity and exhaustion. As long ago as 1938, when the British still governed Palestine under a League of Nations mandate, the eminent historian George Antonius, the Edward Said of his time, was warning of the dangers of too much reliance on the vast body of literature already in existence, and his words are no less relevant today. Listen to this. It has to be used with care, partly because of the high percentage of open or veiled propaganda, and partly because the remoteness of the indispensable Arabic sources has militated against real fairness, even in the works of neutral and fair-minded historians. A similar equality eviscerates the stream of day-to-day -day information. Zionist propaganda is active, highly organized and widespread. The world press, at any rate, in the democracies of the West, is largely amenable to it. It commands many of the available channels for the dissemination of news, and more particularly, those of the English-speaking world. There you go. Arab propaganda is, in comparison, primitive and infinitely less successful. You can say that again. The Arabs have little of the skill, polyglotic ubiquity, or financial resources which make Jewish propaganda so effective. 
The result is that for a score of years or so, the world has been looking at Palestine mainly through Zionist spectacles and has unconsciously acquired the habit of reasoning on Zionist premises. Those of you who had to listen to the Palestinian Authority's spokesman would probably agree with this. Um, incomprehensible in any language, I used to say when I heard them speaking at the United Nations. Most of the last 30 years of my life has been spent cataloging events that relate directly or indirectly to the battle for Palestine, to the unresolved injustices that have afflicted both Arabs and Jews since the 1920s and earlier. British support for an independent Arab nation was expressed, of course, when Britain needed Arab forces to fight the Turks. The Balfour Declaration, giving support to a Jewish national home, was made when Britain needed Jewish support, both politically and scientifically, during the First World War. Lloyd George, who was British Prime Minister in 1917, would often fantasize upon the biblical drama being played out in Palestine. He said he wanted Jerusalem for Christmas in 1917. Allenby got it for him, no problem. And he referred in his memoirs to the capture by British troops of the most famous city in the world, which had for centuries baffled the efforts of Christendom to regain possession of its sacred shrines. Lloyd George, that he should have reflected upon Allenby's campaign as a successor to the Crusades was incredible. It was a theme that would run through the 20th century in the West dealing with the Middle East. It would find its natural echo in Bush's own talk of a crusade after the international crimes against humanity in 2001. In those same memoirs, Lloyd George makes scarcely any reference to the Balfour Declaration, interestingly enough, and then only to suggest that it was a gesture made, of course, to reward the prominent Zionist Heim Weizmann for his scientific work on acetone, which was needed in the making of British shells in the First World War. Weizmann's name, Lloyd George would infuse, will rank with that of Nehemiah in the fascinating and inspiring story of the children of Israel. Nehemiah was responsible for the 5th century BC rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem. But at almost the same time Lloyd George was writing this, in 1936 he was speaking far more frankly about the Balfour Declaration in the House of Commons in London. Here is what he said during debate on the Arab Revolt. It was at one of the darkest periods of the war that Mr. Balfour first prepared his declaration. At that time, the French army had mutinied, the Italian army was on the eve of collapse. America had hardly started preparing in earnest. There was nothing left but Britain confronting the most powerful military combination that the world had ever seen the German Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was important for us, Lloyd George said, to seek every legitimate help we could get. The government came to the conclusion from information received from every part of the world that it was very vital that we should have the sympathies of the Jewish community. We certainly had no prejudices against the Arabs because at that moment we had hundreds of thousands of troops fighting for Arab emancipation from the Turks. Under these conditions, and with the advice they received, the government decided it was desirable for us to secure the sympathy and cooperation of that most remarkable community, the Jews, throughout the world. They were helpful to us in America to a very large extent, and they were helpful even in Russia at that moment, because Russia was just about to walk out and leave us alone. Bolshevik revolution, of course. Under these conditions, Lloyd George said, we proposed this to our allies, France, Italy, and the United States accepted it. Jews, with all the influence they possessed, responded nobly to the appeal that was made. The French army's mutiny and the potential collapse on the Italian front, it seems, had more to do with promises for a Jewish national home than did Nehemiah. But now the Arabs were demanding practically that there should be no more Jewish immigration, Lloyd George complained to the Commons. It was not as if the Arabs were in a position, he said, to say that Jewish immigration is driving them, the ancient inhabitants, out. But Lloyd George grasped, if with too little gravity, where the problem lay. Quote, the obligations of the mandate were specific and definite. 
They were that we were to encourage the establishment of a national home for the Jews in Palestine without detriment to any of the rights of the Arab population. That was a dual undertaking, and we must see that both parts of the mandate are enforced. But, of course, both parts of the mandate were not enforced, as we know, and could not be enforced. And Nazi Germany's persecution of its Jews in 1936, which Lloyd George specifically mentioned, would turn into the Holocaust, and which would ensure the existence of an Israeli state in Palestine, whatever the right of the Arab population. The establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine or of a national home based on territorial sovereignty cannot be accomplished without forcibly displacing the Arabs, Lloyd George said. Antonius wanted an independent Arab state in which as many Jews as the country can hold without prejudice to its political and economic freedom would live in peace, security and dignity and enjoy full rights of citizenship. Fearing what he, Antonius, called an unpredictable holocaust of Arab, Jewish and British lives, help for the Jews of Europe, he said, must be sought elsewhere than in Palestine. I quote Antonius again. This is 1938, remember. The treatment meted out to Jews in Germany and other European countries is a disgrace to its authors and to modern civilization. Posterity will not exonerate any country that fails to bear its proper share of the sacrifices needed to alleviate Jewish suffering and distress. To place the brunt of the burden upon Arab Palestine is a miserable evasion of the duty that lies upon the whole of the civilized world. It is also morally outrageous. No code of morals can justify the persecution of one people in an attempt to relieve the persecution of another. The cure for the eviction of Jews from Germany is not to be sought in the eviction of the Arabs from their homeland, and the relief of Jewish distress may not be accomplished at the cost of inflicting a corresponding distress upon an innocent and peaceful population. Many people in the 30s, you know, had a very good idea of what was coming. They had a very, very good idea of what was coming. You know, Winston Churchill wrote in 1937 an extraordinary essay, which hardly anyone I've met has ever read. It was about Palestine and what was going to happen. Very prophetic. I'll read it to you, a little bit from it. He wrote, this is 1937, the wealthy, he wrote of the wealthy, crowded, progressive Jewish state lies in the plains and on the areas outside Palestine. Around it, in the hills and the uplands, stretching far and wide into the illimitable deserts, the warlike Arabs of Syria, of Transjordan, of Arabia, backed by the armed forces of Iraq, offer the ceaseless menace of war. To maintain itself, this is the prophecy of Churchill in 37, to maintain itself, the Jewish state must be armed to the teeth and must bring in every available, able-bodied man to strengthen its army. But how long would this process be allowed to continue by the great Arab populations in Iraq and Palestine? Can it be expected that the Arabs would stand by impassively and watch the building up with Jewish world capital and resources of a Jewish army equipped with the most deadly weapons of war until it was strong enough not to be afraid of them? And if ever the Jewish army reached that point, who can be sure that cramped within their narrow limits they would not plunge out into the new undeveloped lands that lie around them? Winston Churchill, 1937. If Palestine should be partitioned, he concluded, I find it difficult to resist the conclusion that this scheme would lead inevitably to the complete evacuation of Palestine by Great Britain. And so, of course, it came to pass. In my own book on the Lebanon War, I've written at great length about the Palestinian dispossession of 1948, the subsequent history of those Palestinian homes that were vacated by their fearful inhabitants, and the fate of the 750,000 Palestinian refugees and their millions of descendants today, many of whom rot, of course, in the squalor of camps in Lebanon, Jordan, and the West Bank and Gaza. 
Following their travail, the task of reporting their hopeless political leadership, their victimization most cruelly demonstrated when they were turned into the aggressors by an all-powerful Israel and later an even more hegemonic United States, and their pathetic, brave, and often callous attempts to seek the world's sympathy have been one of the most depressing experiences in journalism. The more we wrote about the Palestinian dispossession, the less effect it seemed to have and the more we were abused as journalists. For the, throughout these long years, there was one outstanding, virtually unchanging phenomenon which ensured that the Middle East balance of power remained unchanged. America's unwavering, largely uncritical, often involuntary support for Israel. Israel's security, or supposed lack thereof, became the yardstick for all negotiations, all military threats, and all wars. The injustice done to the Palestinians, the dispossession, the massacres, not only the loss of that part of Palestine which became Israel and is internationally recognized as such, and correctly so now, but also the occupation of the remainder of the mandate territory and the bloody suppression of any and all manifestation of Palestinian resistance. This had to take second place to Israel's security and the civilized values and democracy which Israel widely promoted. Her army, which often behaved, and I saw this in Lebanon myself, with cruelty and indiscipline, was to be regarded as an exemplar of purity of arms, and those of us who witnessed Israel's killing of civilians were to be abused as liars, anti-Semites, or friends of terrorism. Report the wanton use of violence by Palestinians, aircraft hijackings, attacks on illegal Jewish settlements, and then inevitably, wicked suicide bombings on the innocent. I call them executioners. They know who they're going to kill. The executioner with explosives strapped to his body, and that was terror, pure and simple. Dangerously present but comfortably isolated from reason, cause, or history. As long as Palestinians were accused of crimes that had been committed because they hated Israel or hated Jews or were brought up as anti-Semites, despite being Semites themselves, or paid to carry out terror or because they hated democracy or represented evil, most of these explanations would later be adopted by the Americans, then Palestinians were outside the boundaries of reason. They were generically violent. They couldn't be talked to. They could not be negotiated with. You cannot negotiate with terrorists. Terrorism is a word that has become a plague on our vocabulary. The excuse and reason and moral permit for state-sponsored violence, our violence, which is now used on the innocent of the Middle East ever more outrageously and promiscuously. Terrorism, terrorism, terrorism has become a full stop, a punctuation mark, a phrase, a speech, a sermon, the be-all and end-all of everything that we must hate in order to ignore injustice and occupation and killing on a large scale. Terror, 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 terror. It is a sonata, a symphony, an orchestra tuned to every television and radio station and news agency report, the soap opera of the devil served up in prime time in wearingly dull and mendacious form for us by the right-wing commentators of the American East Coast, and I'm sorry to say by many of my American colleagues, also by some of the intellectuals of Europe. Strike against terror, victory over terror, war on terror, everlasting war on terror. Rarely in history have soldiers and journalists and presidents and kings aligned themselves in such thoughtless and questioning ranks. In August 1914, the soldiers of Britain, France, and Germany thought they'd be home by Christmas. Today, we're told we're fighting forever. The war is eternal. Maybe go on forever, Bush told us. Heaven spare me. The war is eternal. The enemy also changes, however. Have you noticed that? The, the enemy at one point, he had a little moustache, and he lived in Cairo and nationalized the Suez Canal. Antony Eden called him the Mussolini of the Nile. Wasn't as strong as the Hitler of Baghdad, but that was to come. Then he lived in Tripoli and wore a ridiculous military uniform and helped the IRA and bombed American bars in Berlin. Then he wore a Muslim imam's gown and ate yogurt in Tehran and planned Islamic revolution. Then he wore a white gown and lived in a cave in Afghanistan, didn't he? 
And then he wore another silly moustache and resided in a series of palaces around Baghdad. Terror, terror, terror. Finally, he wore a kufia headdress and outdated Soviet-style military fatigues. His name was Yasser Arafat, and he was the master of world terror. And then he was a super-statesman and went to the White House. And then again he became a master of terror, linked by his Israeli enemies to the terror maestro of them all, the man who lived in the Afghan cave. There's a problem here, isn't there? There's a problem, you know, because we can't ask why. Arafat's greatest error, his support for Saddam Hussein, was to give him his greatest and hollowest victory, financially cut off by the wealthiest Gulf Arab states, especially Kuwait, of course. And derided by the world, Arafat shared the fate of King Hussein of Jordan, who also supported Saddam. He was now weak enough to be accepted as a peace partner of Israel. Interesting, the two guys who backed Saddam, Hussein of Jordan and Yasser Arafat became the next two men to make peace with Israel. Isn't that extraordinary? And they were the people who backed Saddam. The Palestinians were not at first allowed to represent themselves, remember. George Bush Sr.'s Middle East Peace was to permit the Palestinians to attend the Madrid Middle East Peace Conference only as part of a Jordanian delegation. And so it went on and on. And Oslo, of course, was a failure. Oslo permitted Israel to, turn, to renegotiate UN Security Council Resolution 242. It was no longer a case of Israel withdrawing the forces from territories occupied in the 67 war in return for security of all states in the area, including Israel. This is 242. It was now a question that we would renegotiate. We'd decide which bit of those territories Israel would withdraw from and which it would not withdraw from. Many in the West, I think, did not realize just how disastrously Arafat's peace accord with Israel was disintegrating. After Oslo after the White House, the famous White House lawn, in which I noticed Clinton quoted the Koran, but Arafat did not. I went, to, I went to Jericho and took the road all the way to Hebron. And a new road was being built, with Israeli permission and instructions, of course, which would allow Palestinians to go to Hebron without passing through Jerusalem, of course. And everybody on that road said that Arafat had betrayed them. Eventually, even Edward Said would call him the pétain of the Palestinians. And I wrote my first story, and it was Arafat's Road to Ruin. That was September. And, of course, the usual hate mail came in. I was pro-terrorist, I was against peace, I was for evil, the usual stuff I regularly get. I, my latest cards, by the way, are a series of cards from America saying that my mum is Eichmann's daughter. <laughs> Adolf Eichmann, one of the creators of the Nazi Holocaust of the Jews, um, my mum actually was in the Royal Air Force in 1940 repairing radios on smashed-up Spitfires and Hurricanes so that the pilots could go up and fight the Nazis, but that didn't matter. These did not go on my bathroom wall like most hate mail. These went in the bin. But this is what we put up with, and of course you can see why many journalists will not put up with it. They'll talk about disputed lands and neighbourhoods and security barriers. There's your problem. You know, back in... 1993, when I made these films, we spent a lot of time in Palestine and Israel. We also filmed, by the way, in South Lebanon, in Beirut, in Egypt, in Bosnia, as you've seen, and in Croatia, as you've seen. What does it really mean, this dispossession of the Palestinians and the construction of settlements for Jews and Jews only on Arab land? In these films, Beirut to Bosnia, the subtitle, by the way, was Why Muslims Are Coming to Hate the West, which was deeply criticized by the Times of London and, of course, the New York Times who said the very sensationalist series. We tried to find why these Muslims were coming to hate the West. Our second film, that was actually part of the third you saw just now, was about the Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank. And in one sequence, we found 
a man, a Palestinian, Mohammed Khatib, living on a little bit of land in East Jerusalem, who was trying to hold on to his land, but had been given an order to quit and get out because there was going to be an Israeli settlement, part of the Male Adumim settlement, which is now the focus of attention, of course, by both the Americans and Israelis. It's one of the settlements which Bush says will stay because there are facts on the ground. I'd like to show you now this short sequence of the life of Mr. Hatib in order to demonstrate to those of you who haven't been to Palestine, Israel, what it looks like when the bulldozers arrive. Pete, can we have the next clip of film, please? We have is the Bible, and if we don't believe the Bible and the board, then there's, we really have nothing to back our claim. Jerusalem, holy to Jews, Muslims, and Christians, has been illegally annexed by Israel, which still claims it to be its eternal and unified capital. East of the city, outside the internationally recognized border of Israel, only a little bit of the old rural Palestine remains. And the huge Jewish settlements built on Palestinian land are now cities. A ring of Israeli concrete around Jerusalem. It takes a brave Palestinian to hold out here, to cling onto his own land in the face of Israel's expanding settlements. But in this little patch of orchard is a family that's refused to leave its land despite an order to get out. and his son have been told to leave their home to make way for a settlement for Jews, some of them from as far away as Russia. has your family owned this land here? Uh, we own it uh, as long as we live. It's inherited from our grandfathers and fathers as well. How many years do you think that is? More than a hundred years? Yes. Do you have the documents to prove this? Do you have the original deeds and papers proving oh, Of course we have. We have the documents from 
the Ottoman period and from the period of the British mandate also. And you have your tax forms, you have the documents showing that this bit of yes, land which we're all, on now... All of this, yes, um, we have. Why is he fighting for his house? Ask him, would you? Because it is his house. Would you ask him? Why do I say that you want to leave the house? You want to leave the house? I don't Suleiman, what is this document we have here? It's a warning for us to leave the house, to leave our house. This is the official notice to quit? Yes. Now this is in Hebrew. Do you speak Hebrew? No, not very much. What have you done with this document? Where is the original? Uh, we gave it to our lawyer, Jonathan Kutab. Kutab? Yes. Jonathan Kutab. And he is in East Jerusalem? Yes, in East Jerusalem. Okay. Although annexed by Israel, the center of East Jerusalem is still ostentatiously Arab. Israelis fear they'll be attacked here. Israeli taxi men don't like to drive on this side of the city. Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence, that sounds promising. Jonathan Kutab, there's our man. He was given a charge sheet saying that he has to turn over mm -hmm. his property to the state. But you see, it was needed for a public purpose. Public purpose meaning? Hospitals, schools, uh, roads, uh, something that benefits the community. So we were told that the public purpose was a special scheme for building your own home. Ah. I said, wonderful. He's been trying very hard to build a home for his son on this land, but was told you couldn't build on it. So now if he can build on it, he would be glad to build a unit, a single apartment here, in return for turning over his property. He doesn't want money, but he wants to participate in this wonderful public scheme. And? Well, he was told, I'm afraid you're not a member of the public we intend to serve. Because the only people who are entitled under this program are either new immigrants or those who have served in the army. But he can't serve in the army. Well, he said, our army. This has to be the Israeli army. If the purpose for which this confiscation occurred is to serve Jews and Jews only, and excludes him, we object. Above Mohammed Khatib's home, the settlements continue to be built. And among the settlers moving in are Europeans, 
Sonia Leani was born in France. Et combien d'argent vous avez payé pour cet appartement ici Je dois dire le prix. Oui, oui, monsieur. 190 000 dollars. Ouf, c'est extraordinaire. Très bel appartement, six pièces, avec deux balcons et un très grand jardin. Mais vous n'avez pas peur d'habiter ici Pas du tout. Ce n'est pas dangereux Non, pas du tout. Mickey Mollard is head of the Settlements Residents Association. Arabs and Jews, and here I'll let you understand a bit of the geography. Over here where the minaret is, the mosque, this is a village which is outside of Jerusalem. And it's obviously an Arab, Muslim. It is an Arab village, Muslim. It's called Khizmeh. In front of us, you see your build your own house scheme, where we see on the right hand of it, we see an Arab house, and his was owner of part of the land and he wanted to buy... Mr. Mollard has been following the story of Mohammed Hatib and the Palestinians' efforts to keep his land. So he went to court because... Because he wanted... He said, it's part of my land, I'm willing to pay for it again, mm -hmm. but I want the right to buy on it, and now it's in court and we will wait and see. It Why would be very interesting. Him, uh, because he's an Arab, he's not Jewish. Do you think it's fair that it's still in the courts? I mean, shouldn't the Israelis just say, fine, this man wants to be with us? Um, if you talk fairness, maybe you're right. But uh, we live in a society where there are certain laws, and um, if I would have been him, I wouldn't even try to go and live within a dense Jewish settlement. It, it won't fit in, there will be problems. That was filmed, as I said, in 1993. I hoped all the crew did that the publicity might help old Mohammed Hatib keep his home. We were wrong. Mohammed Hatib was evicted from his home along with his wife before Christmas of 1993. A Jewish settlement is now built over his land. I should also tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that no television channel, not a single newspaper, reported Mohammed Hatib's final eviction from his family home. As far as CNN was concerned, he might never have existed. I have one more observation on this series of films of which I've shown you two extracts. After the series aired for the first time in the United States, Israeli lobby groups brought commercial pressure to bear on the American Express Company, which had helped to fund the Discovery Channel's film. American Express cards were sent back, chopped in half to Discovery. Credit cards were broken up. One letter to Discovery one letter claimed that we should have called the West Bank disputed rather than occupied. To say as we did, according to another letter, that Israel builds huge Jewish settlements on Arab land was twisted history. To say that Israeli troops sent the phalanges into the Sabra and Shatila camps at the time of the 1982 Palestinian massacre, an incontrovertible fact attested to by Israel's own Khan Commission of Inquiry in 1984, was an egregious falsehood. Another letter from an Israeli lobby group described me as spreading venom into the living rooms of America. I was, and I quote, Henry Higgins with fangs.
Less funny, however, was Discovery's decision after receiving these extraordinary letters not to give the films the customary second showing. Asked if he had cancelled the second showing because of pressures from the Israeli lobby, Clark Bunting, the American Channel's senior vice president, replied, and take close note of this extraordinary sentence, ladies and gentlemen. He replied, Given the reaction to the series upon its initial airing, we never scheduled a subsequent airing, so there's not really an issue as to any scheduled re-airing being cancelled. <laughs> and when I read those gutless words, ladies and gentlemen, I was ashamed to be a foreign correspondent. I'm going to show you one more tiny clip of film of a different kind. Again, let me stress, we're asking the question why. Israel was not responsible, despite the racist slurs, including by Arabs, claiming that Israel had some responsibility. It was not responsible for the crimes against humanity of the 11th of September, 2001. But we must keep asking the question why, because the United States is involved in relations with the Middle East. And that was the one question, of course, we were not allowed to discuss. One of the last taboo questions, as Edward Said said. In America, you can discuss blacks, you can discuss lesbianism, homosexuality, anything, but not the relationship between America and Israel. I'm going to talk to you very briefly and show you a very clip, a quick clip of film about a place called Kana. Many of you, I think, will know of this atrocity. It happened almost exactly 12 years ago at the height of the Israeli bombardment of southern Lebanon. What started that bombardment? Well, a bomb went off near a village called Bradshit, which was probably le left by Israel's allies for Hezbollah fighters, but in fact it killed a young boy. As retaliation, the Hezbollah fired rockets into Israel, and as retaliation, the Israelis started a massive bombardment across all of southern Lebanon. For all of 17 minutes, Israeli troops, who would later claim that they were shooting at the Hezbollah, fired proximity shells onto hundreds of civilian refugees crammed into the headquarters of the United Nations Fijian Battalion. I was there at the time. It was hell in blood. People crawling without limbs out of the main gate. I was actually in Kana when the shelling began. I was on a UN convoy led by an Irish officer whom you'll actually hear speaking on this piece of tape. One man was blown in half, his torso coming to rest in a tree. There were babies on fire. For us reporters at the time, and for the United Nations, the truth or otherwise of Israel's explanation that it never intended to hit the UN base and its protected Muslim civilians rested on its denial that it could not see where its shells were falling. Shells, by the way, manufactured in the United States, fired by weapons, artillery, 155, that were also manufactured in the United States. But the survivors, UN soldiers and refugees alike, all told of seeing a pilotless Israeli photo reconnaissance aircraft over the camp during the massacre. And if this was true then the implication was obvious. The Israelis knew all too well what they were doing. The UN's military investigation repeatedly asked the Israelis if they had such a drone pilotless aircraft over Kana at the time of the shelling. I will quote from the final UN report. In response to repeated questions, the Israeli interlocutors stated that there had been no Israeli aircraft, helicopters, or remotely piloted vehicles in the air over Kana before, during, or after the shelling. The Americans, by the way, put enormous pressure on Boutros Boutros Ghali not to publish this report because they thought there was no proof of the pilotless drone over the base. Major General Franklin von Kappen, the UN investigator, again asked the Israelis to check. Israeli Brigadier General David Sewer then replied, and I quote, there were no choppers or mini RPVs, pilotless reconnaissance aircraft, above the area of Kana on April 18 before or during the incident. 
Within days of the massacre, however, I heard that a Norwegian, a Norwegian UN soldier at another UN base less than a mile from Kana had quite by chance videotaped the shelling of the UN base and had, incredible as it sounded, also filmed an Israeli pilotless photo reconnaissance aircraft over the camp as the shells exploded onto it. I spoke to hundreds of UN troops about this mysterious film. Did it exist? And if so, why hadn't it serviced? Why hadn't it serviced? Why hadn't the UN publicized it? Then I was told there was a film that had been given to General Van Kappen, the UN's investigator, that the soldier had been told never to give it to anyone else ever. And I heard, too, that the UN's report in New York would be kept secret, along with the videotape, under what was described as American pressure on the UN Secretary General. At the mass funeral of the massacre victims in Kana, I stood on the roof of the shell-smashed UN base to watch the burials. Many of the young Fijian soldiers around me were weeping. Yes, one of them told me, He'd seen the film. He couldn't remember if it showed the pilotless drone aircraft. In any event, he said, all the soldiers had been forbidden from talking about it. I was deeply depressed. But two days later, I was sitting at home in Beirut when my mobile phone rang. A voice gave me a map reference and added, 1,300 hours. The map reference was a crossroads outside Kana, and I have never driven so fast to southern Lebanon in my life. And at 1,300 hours, I saw in the rearview mirror a UN jeep pull up behind me. A UN soldier in battle dress and blue beret walked up to me, shook hands, and said, I copied the tape before the UN took it. The plane is there. I've made a personal decision, he said. I have two young children, the same age as the ones I carried dead in my own arms at Kana. This is for them. And from his battle dress, he pulled a video cassette and threw it on the passenger seat of my car. And it was, I think... In retrospect, the most dramatic individual personal act I have ever seen a soldier take. The mighty powers may try to cover up, but the little men can still sometimes win. For me, actually, the video cassette, because I hate technology, I don't use the internet, I don't use email, I hate videos. It had a kind of, there was an odd symbolism about it. Suddenly, this videotape was everything I needed if I could prove my story and if it showed what I thought it showed. Bob hates technology. I'm a Luddite, as they say in England. But now a newspaper man had got his hands on it. Well, we're about to see what was on that cassette. The contents are not gruesome. We shall see and hear the shelling of the UN compound and see the burning conference room in which so many of the dead died, 106 dead, more than half of them children. And we'll see it from a distance. But those pictures and the sound of the shells are all the more terrifying because we know the dreadful things that are happening beneath. People are dying with their arms and heads and legs being chopped off. This is unedited film. There is no commentary, which is why I will talk you through it myself. The camera work is poor. At one point, a Norwegian soldier, unaware of the seriousness of the shelling, makes a face into the camera. But you'll see another soldier looking upwards as a steadily growing noise insinuates itself above the shell fire. Then the camera moves up and catches quite clearly the pilotless reconnaissance aircraft, which the Israelis said was not there. The tape ends as UN ambulances take the wounded to the nearest emergency UN helicopter pad, where saddest of all you see on this film, a UN pilot reluctantly orders a, wo a wounded woman and two small wounded children away. His helicopter is already too full of the dying. The tape opens then with Kana already under fire, almost covered in the smoke of exploding Israeli shells. Um, can we have the tape, please, Pete? And can you keep my mic on so I can talk to people? <laughs> Shells are being fired from an Israeli gun battery over here. Of course, they're going up in the sky and coming down like that onto the base. 
That's an overshoot there. This is part, this post here is part of the uh, UN base one mile away from which this film is being taken. See, Kana almost obscured by smoke. The, 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 so you hear that shell coming in, the whistle as it, it explodes. Again and again, the shells all falling inside the camp, very accurate. That's wind against the sound of the mic you're hearing. So it's a very amateur film, um, very amateurish film made. And when the soldier made it, of course, he didn't realize how important it was. conference room where most of the dead are burning to death or have been literally chopped up into bits is, is, is in there on fire. You'll see the fire in a minute. These are Norwegian UN troops who are watching. They don't realize how serious this is at the moment. See, they're on the roof. It's interesting that some of the soldiers on the roof aren't even wearing their steel helmets. Here's Kana in the background. There's an overshoot of a shell there. But the main shells are still falling on Kana itself. You can hear in the background. That's another shell impacting on Kana. See, they're standing out in the open. They're not in bunkers. They're quite certain these shells are not... There's another incoming. They're quite shell, certain these shells are not meant for them. They're not stray shells in the eyes of the Norwegians. It's one of their large military-type binoculars at the top. Now we're looking through the Norwegian barbed wire across at Kana. There's Kana still in the background. You see the center of the shelling here. Yes, there's always a fool on the video tape. Now you'll hear the beginning of the radio traffic. Norwegians are asking what is happening, what is going on. This goes on for 17 minutes, this show. Grey sky, it was raining part of The artillery battery that was firing was inside Lebanon. It wasn't from Israel itself, but it was Israeli. Now you'll hear the UN reporting around the shelf. In a moment you'll hear the Irish officer who's sitting next to me in a truck over here saying that Fiji Bat's headquarters is on the fire. You'll hear his voice on the tape. Look, he's looking up in the sky, he's heard something, and up in the sky, suddenly, we catch on the videotape, the one thing the Israelis said wasn't there, it's going to come, there it is, the pilotless drone, like a model aircraft flying over, see, it really is real, that's the sound of it you hear. Now, the tape goes back again, there you see Kana still under fire. There it is, that's a helicopter going over now, with, with crew inside, dropping phosphorus flares in case it's attacked with ground zone missiles. There's another phosphorus flare being dropped. This is a, this is a helicopter with, 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 with human beings inside. This is not a... Now here is, here is the camp under fire. Is the shelling still on? 
Roger, Roger, it's still going on. Roger, This is the Irish passing on the Fijian message to you in headquarters. They're still under fire. That's the fire you can just see here. That's the fire burning in the conference centre, where there are more than half a hundred people dying or dead. You can still hear the drone. You can hear it in the background, up above. Now in the chaos that followed, the UN along with many civilians coming up from Tyre trying to find out their relatives. You see, all the civilians have gone in the UN camp for protection from the shellfire because they thought they'd be safe in the UN base. The Hezbollah had fired several mortars at Israeli troops inside southern Lebanon from a graveyard about three quarters of a mile from the camp. The Israelis were later to say that they were firing at the graveyard and accidentally hit the base. Now here we have the helicopter pad of the UN and here we have a badly wounded Fijian soldier they're trying to get out put on board the helicopter. The helicopter's behind over here. Very amateur film, very poorly taken, but everything you need to know is on it. UN helicopter crews in Lebanon are Italian Air Force crews. How not to carry an empty stretcher. Yes, that's real life, I'm afraid. You can hear the UN chopper in the background. You hear the, the rotor blades turning the helicopter. It's a Balogasca helicopter, American. Here's the helicopter. You see there's wounded people sitting beside it and standing beside it. This is a helicopter and the helicopter pad opposite Kana. Of course, at the time, we interviewed everyone, all the soldiers who were here, the helicopter pilots, the Lebanese soldier who saw just there, the, the, medic, the medics who were there, all trying to find out about that drone, which we've just seen. So he's on full power to take off, and they're trying to get there's some children sitting on the ground there, wounded. There are too many people on board the helicopter already. Cloudy, rainy day. Now we're coming up to the end of this clip of film. There's the helicopter, and you see here is a woman and two wounded children. You see the bandages on them, trying to get aboard, still hoping they get out. And the pilot comes down and says, "Get away! Go back! Go back! We've got to take off! Look, away! Away!" And they walk back, untended, still wounded, without help. The pilot goes back to fly away. There they are, one two children, you see. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the clip ends. <clears throat> I wrote the story of its contents for my paper, 
and we then, at no profit, copied it many times and sent it to every television station which requested it. British, French, American, Arab, and Israeli, all of whom showed the short sequence of the drone over Kana during the shelling. The UN, mainly on the basis of the film, of which they had, of course, all along had a copy, concluded that the slaughter was unlikely to have been caused by an error, a gentle way of saying it was deliberate. It must be added that the Israelis announced later that, and I quote, in their eagerness to cooperate with the United Nations, they had given wrong information to Van Kappen. Yes, there was indeed a drone over Kana, they said, but it wasn't photographing the camp. It was on another mission. The Israelis did not tell us what this other mission was. In any event, the Israelis said, the pilotless aircraft only arrived after the shelling had ended. A claim of the videotape clearly shows to be untrue. I've asked you this question why, and I'm not going to try and answer that question, nor am I saying, I repeat, that the Israelis were in any way responsible for September the 11th, but an environment has been created in the Middle East, ladies and gentlemen, from which these people came, and all that was necessary after this international crime against humanity on September the 11th, 2001, was for one man to say it had changed the world forever. And, of course, that's exactly what George Bush said. And that allows us to see the debasement of human rights, Guantanamo, torture, murder in Bagram Air Base, the deaths of tens of thousands of Iraqis. And I tell you something, it's a lie. I will not let 19 Arab murderers change my world, and nor should you. Thank you for your patience tonight. Thank you very much to Robert and to you for your warm response. We have about um, 10, 15 minutes in which Robert is uh, happy to take questions from the floor. You'll see that there are two microphones in the aisles here so that um, anybody who would like to ask a question, perhaps prepare yourselves to come down. uh, Yeah, or you can put your hand up and I'll repeat the question over the mic if we want to speed things up. But I see... uh, Alison, would you like to start off with a question? Robert, you've said that uh, you've you've differentiated very clearly for us between the how and the why. In this country, we hear all the time that it wasn't... We hear two other words, the what and the who. They tell us all the time, it's not what we've done, but who we are. Could you give us your analysis on that one. Look, um, I don't think this was because uh, the people who hijacked those aircraft hated democracy. Most of them wouldn't know democracy what it was if if they found it lying in bed with them in the morning. Um, If you want to know who we are, 
We are the people who invaded Iraq in 1917 under General Angus Maud, I'm talking about the British, and who posted a poster on the walls of Baghdad, of which I have a copy at my home, which says, we come here, this is the British Army in 1917, we come here not as conquerors, but as liberators to free you from generations of tyranny. <laughs> That's who we are. We are the people, the British, who in 1920 fought an insurgency in Iraq. And the first city we attacked after the first British soldier was killed was called Fallujah. And the second city we surrounded was called Najaf. And we, the British in 1920, demanded the surrender of a Shiite cleric called Badr. Not Sadr, but Badr. We got the cleric. The Americans didn't get Sadr. And in 1920, British intelligence, us, wrote a message to the Ministry of War in London, now the Ministry of Defence, the War Department, saying that terrorists were crossing the border of Iraq from... Yes, that's right, from Syria. And then Lloyd George, because the, the, op the occupation was very unpopular in Britain, was costing a lot of money and, and a lot of dead British soldiers, Lloyd George stood up in the House of Commons and said, if British troops leave Iraq, there will be civil war, of course. You, you knew what he said before you knew, right? We are the people... Napoleon, before he went on the Egyptian expedition, sent a message to the people of Cairo he was going to free them from the Pashas, who hang them when they use free speech. Always we go to rescue the Arabs with our Abrams tanks and our swords and our horses and our M1A1 Abrams and our, our Bradley fighting armored vehicles and our Apache helicopters. And we kill many, many. And we don't care about who we kill. We don't care about it. I don't think we care very much about the Arab world or the Muslims. I don't think we care about them. Look at Iraq. How many people have died in Iraq? We have not the slightest idea and we will not know. And that is how it is intended to be. That is who we are. That is who we are. It is we who attacked and overthrew the democratically elected Prime Minister of Iraq, Mossadegh. I've met, he's now dead, but I met the MI6 officer in charge of what the British called Operation Boot and the Americans called Operation Ajax. It was a CIA MI6 operation. The Arabs keep talking about the, the, the plot, the Ma'amara in Arabic. And I always laugh, but that was a plot, it was a real one, and it worked. Who are we? We say nothing when the settlements get larger. We say nothing about the war. Tom Friedman, ever more messianic, he's an old mate of mine, by the way, but Tom Friedman made a, a column a couple of years ago. He said, you know, the Palestinians should use Gandhi's techniques of peaceful protest. So what happened? When the wall began, they went to the International Court at The Hague, and Israel was told to stop building it, and Israel went on building it. That's what Gandhi did for the Palestinians. Tom Friedman didn't make any comment on that, of course. That's who we are, though. That's who we are. And we go along with this. We accept it. And we're wrong. I'll say what I've said many times before. Arabs would like some of our democracy. They'd like a couple of packets of human rights from our supermarket shelves. But they'd also like freedom. And most of all, I suspect, they would like freedom from us. And that we do not intend to give them. You go talk to... Freedom and democracy has to be founded on justice. And over and over and over again, an Arab will say to me, in Lebanon or in Palestine, they want justice. Israelis say it too, by the way, not without some reason. And we don't talk about justice. I went back through my files. I can't find a single reference to the word justice in any speech by Blair or Bush since 2001. <coughs> I'm wrong. There's one reference to a military operation called Operation Infinite Justice. But that isn't quite the justice that the Arabs have in mind. <laughs> So you see, that's who we are. That's who we are. I have, a, I have a question, Mr. Fisk. Um, you, I think you've explained and argued very clearly uh, 
the journalists have a responsibility to tell the truth about this, but what about the what would you say is the responsibility of the people who read it and who are now made aware of it and practically tell speaking, <laughs> what should they do? Look, uh, yeah. My mailbag at the moment has never been so filled with letters from readers. Um, most of them in the United States rather than Britain, although you know, we have a huge readership in Britain, um, saying, you know, we live in a democracy, we vote for our congressman or woman or our MP in Britain, and we don't want war in Iraq, and they go to Parliament and they vote for the government, and we have a war in Iraq. Over and over again, I'm reminded by intelligent, educated readers that there is an awful gap that has begun between... Um, can I ask you if we can actually choose the people and get them to put their hands up rather than come to the mic? If people feel quite free to stay in the audience, and I'll choose people from the base, but we'll take this lady who was here before sure. then. So if you want okay. to conclude and that question, yeah. what, we'll what start I'm, here. What I'm just saying is that, you know, what we've got to do is to try and understand how the gap came between the elector and the elected. I don't know anyone I, I know personally as a friend in Britain who actually believes they're represented any longer by their MP. There is a, I know this applies here too, by the way. And it certainly applies in the United States. I had a, a U.S. Marine officer at San Diego who came to a lecture I gave in San Diego who said, we've got a fraudulent democracy. It doesn't matter who I vote for. I can't get my will taken. This was a guy who knew the Middle East very well. I mean, you've got to realize a lot of U.S. forces understand exactly what I'm saying to you, especially the ones in Iraq. They know what a catastrophe it is. They don't believe what Bush is saying. The generals go along with it. They've got careers to make. An awful lot of U.S. I mean, U.S. special forces come to my lectures in New York and come up afterwards and tell me what's going on. They know what's going on. I even met a torturer not long ago, a man who tortured, and I think he enjoyed it. So, you know, let's go back to the point. I don't know how to answer your question, because all I can do is say, look, this is what's happening. Don't ever tell me you didn't know. All I can do is try to do what Amira Haas, that very fine Israeli journalist, told me I should do. We were discussing in Jerusalem a couple of years ago, what is a foreign correspondent's job? And I said, oh, it is to report the first pages of history. Very pompous Bob, right? Very English. And he said, no, Robert, you're wrong, she said. Our job is to monitor the centers of power, to challenge authority, especially when they want to go to war and especially when they're going to kill people with lies. Amira had a very, very moving story of why she felt like this. Her mother was a Jewish partisan with Tito. I think from the town of Satigny, I can't quite remember now. I've got it written down at home. And the Gestapo and the Wehrmacht surrounded the village and said, if this woman doesn't surrender, we will kill all the women and children in the village. So, of course, Amira's mother surrendered. She was put on a train to Germany for a concentration camp. And when the train stopped, she and many other women in rags were led up a road towards the camp. And the road led through beautiful German farmhouses where housefrauers were coming out of the front door to look as they were you know, drying up their saucers and coffee cups from their morning breakfast and stood leaning over the fence, watching these poor women, almost all of them Jewish, going to the camp. And Amira's mother described to her, said, these were people who looked on from the side. And Amira, all her life, she tells me, she hates people who look on from the side. And the biggest tragedy about the moment is that you are being made to look on from the side. And you don't deserve that. But it's not for me to start giving you advice as to how you take steps over this. It's your country your decision. I'll do my job. You have to think what you're going to do. <laughs> I suppose for, 
I suppose following on from the previous question and challenging authority, do you feel after September 11, do, do you think the general consensus within the public is now we assume we know why it happened, therefore people don't, aren't asking enough questions? Are we assuming, or are we listening to more what the authorities are saying? Do you feel that, I assume with something such as September 11 happening, the general consensus would be to ask more questions and, and wanting to find why, but do you feel that that actually hasn't happened? Well, um, I think we are asking why now, but we're a bit late in the day. Um, I mean, one of the things you find in the States, because I go there on average every three and a half weeks to give lectures, is more and more people in the audience believe that the American administration had some kind of involvement. I have to say, before you clap, I, I don't have any proof of that. Um, it may have been, I mean, the worst that I could envisage is that they knew something was coming and preferred it to happen so that their strategy could be put in place. But even that would connote a kind of, quote, evil, unquote, that Mr. Bush talks about. Um, I don't have any proof that that's the case, but I would have to say that in my correspondence from Americans, and I'm not talking about nutters, I'm talking about bright, intelligent people with good jobs, more and more are saying, we've got to investigate this more, it can't be that simple. Just like I say that it's not, quote, civil war in Iraq. I don't believe that all the Sunnis are blowing up Shiite mosques and all the Shiites are going blowing up Sunni mosques. It's much more complicated than that, and there are other hands involved. But I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm not based in New York. If I was, I'd still be chasing the September 11th story. I'm, I'm based in Beirut. I can't do it. Um, but it's interesting to see, partly, I think, because of the culture of secrecy of the White House. Never have we had a White House so secret as this one. Partly because of this culture, I think suspicions are growing in the United States, among, not just among you know, Berkeley guys with, with uh, you know, flowers in their hair, but, but serious people across the states are asking. People in Iowa, for God's sakes, are asking me in letters, what really happened? How did these buildings fall so neatly down? And I can't answer them except to say, I'm in Beirut, not New York. I can't investigate this. But there are a lot of things we don't know, a lot of things we're not going to be told. Um, Ziad Jara was one of the suicide pilots. He was the Lebanese whose plane crashed, possibly, when the, the, the passengers stormed the flight deck. Or perhaps the plane was hit by a missile. We still don't know. Which crashed in Pennsylvania. And I know his family quite well. I've been to see them. And I've questioned and cross-questioned the father in particular to the point where he's crying as to why this happened. This guy had a girlfriend. He, he was getting engaged to a Turkish girl. Just before September 11, he rang her and said he couldn't come and introduce her to his parents, so she should go on her own and say, I'm the fiancé of your son. Very odd situation in the Muslim world, especially in Lebanon or Turkey. On the morning of September 11, she took a phone call from Ziad, who said to her, Ziad Jarad said, I love you. And she said, what's wrong? And he said, I love you, and hung up. He was already dead, you see, in his mind. He, he was going. Um, he obviously was a pilot. He obviously had been to Afghanistan. The family have told me this. They went and got him back. But when he came back, he was no more the guy who liked going dancing with his friends and having girlfriends. He was going to the mosque five times a day. He'd gone across. And today, outside his house, stands a brand-new black Mercedes-Benz his birthday present from his father, who's waiting for him to return, which he will not do. Um, I can't answer the question any better than that. Where will it all end? I know that's... Uh, uh, that is the stupidest <laughs> question I've ever been asked in my life. <laughs> Let's have someone else, shall we? Somebody else, take, take one from here. <coughs> do be kind to us and make your question relatively short and easy to repeat. Thank you.
Would I explain why the Israelis feel it necessary to occupy the occupied territories? Um, well, they were occupied after the 67 war when the Israelis took Golan and Gaza and the West Bank. Why do they find it necessary to go and occupy it? Look, there is... You, the very beginning of the film on Mohammed Hatib, you saw a Jewish settler trying to explain that question. She was actually in Gaza and has left now, of course. Um, if you talk to the more messianic settlers, not the most of the settlers on Golan will probably leave if they were told to, because most of them are fairly leftist. They're not very religious Jews. If you talk to the ones who are spurred on by the idea of the Bible, they will tell you this in the West Bank is the land of Judea and Samaria. This is our land because it was our land 2,000 years ago. And what's interesting, you see, is that the actual land of the Israelites, if you go back that far, was in the West Bank. It wasn't on the coastal plain at all. But obviously, if you suggest to the Israelis that they give up Tel Aviv and take over Ramallah, it doesn't commend itself very much. <laughs> but, but that is the case. And, you know, as you know, if you go to the settlements, the Jewish settlers there will say the ancient name of the settlement is X, and here is part of the original stone of the original place where the Jews lived 2,000 years ago. The problem is, you see, that if you have one group of people, the Palestinians, you say, look, I've got my landies from the Ottoman times and there's my tax returns from the British mandate, and you have the other guy who's taken the land who said, no, 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 he gave it to me. <laughs> it comes from him, you see. You, there's no future, there's no conversation. There's no compromise. You can't say any more. That's the end of all conversation, isn't it? That's the problem. I think... Unless 242, UN Security Council Resolution 242, withdrawal of Israel from territories occupied in the 67 war in return for the security of all states in the area, including Israel, of course, and the understanding and clear understanding that it is illegal to acquire land through war. If that is abided by, in the same way that everyone else has to abide by UN Security Council resolutions, Israel will have peace and security. And they can have international troops on the frontier. But if East Jerusalem is not allowed to be part of a future Palestinian state, if that wall stays, and if the settlements go on being built, there will not be a peace. And Israelis deserve peace just as much as Palestinians do. But they won't get it. There's your problem. We have time for probably just one more question. So out of fairness, we'll take it from the Central Bay here, this lady here. Uh, yeah, I just missed the last bit. You, you are something and you're in the army. I'm an Israeli. You're Israeli, yeah. I'm in the army. Yep. No, I wasn't comparing it at all. I was showing a whole series of examples of what has caused suffering in the Middle East region. The question is, uh, this lady felt very hurt that I was comparing what the Israelis and Palestinians were doing with the ethnic cleansing which I showed at the beginning in Bosnia. She felt I was making a comparison. I wasn't, but that's what she's saying. I think it's not that simple. I don't think it's a war between um, Muslims. I don't think it's a war of religion. I think that's a war about land. And can I keep repeating? Because other people can't. She says she doesn't think it's a war about religion. She thinks it's a war about land. I agree with you, by the way. Carry on. And I No, of course they don't. Yeah. She says, she says it's not just about, it's not about Muslims and she doesn't think all Muslims support the September 11th attacks. Yeah. And she knows that all Israelis are not against Arabs, yes. Yeah, and I just, I'm sorry, I just, 
And she says she's very hurt by the, the comments I made, right? I'm just repeating so they can hear because they can't all hear you. Look, number one, I was trying to show an environment in which Muslims live, whether they be in Bosnia, whether they be Palestinian, I've talked about other incidents, which has created a situation in which these 19 murderers suddenly emerged. We've seen them in Hollywood movies. Suddenly they became real. Look, I know that many Israelis still struggle for fairness and honor for the Palestinians. A classic example is Amir Haas, Gideon Levy in Haaretz. I, you know, one of the things when, when nice people who think they're liberals, like me, we think we're liberal, right? We go to Israel and we hunt down those Israelis whom we know who will say what we want to hear. The leftist socialist type. I'm not a leftist or socialist. I never voted for anyone in my life. Just a bit like email, isn't it, on the internet? But the fact of the matter is, many of us would like an Israel that we are aware of to exist throughout the country. We'd like many Israelis to, to think in the way Israeli friends think. You know, I can go to dinner in Jerusalem with Israeli friends, and we talk about all that we're talking about now. We talk about Bosnia, we talk about uh, people like Mohammed Hatib, we, we, we talk about Kana, we talk about Lebanon. Many of the people I know were soldiers in Lebanon, just as many of the people I know were fighting those soldiers who are Lebanese. And we have complete understanding, and in most cases, complete agreement. But as I, I said to a friend of mine today, actually a, a, a Jewish friend, though not an Israeli, I said the problem is that you can go to very well-educated Israelis who agree with everything you say and who want to agree with you, but who, but you know, then you get the bus to Jerusalem and you're with what I call ordinary Israelis, people who work in shops, people who work in factories, and you do not hear the same voice. These are the people who will be voting for the Kud or perhaps for Sharon's new party if it comes into real existence. And you have to realize that these people also exist. You know, on the anniversary of Holocaust Day, three years ago, four years ago, I went to um, Der Yassin, which of course was the village which, where the massacres took place from Irgun in 1948. And I tried to find a Holocaust survivor who was living, it's Givat Shaul in Hebrew, I think that's correctly pronounced by me now, who was living in the place which is now Givat Shaul, which was Der Yassin, and ask him what he thought of Der Yassin. And incredibly, it was a Saturday morning, I came across the youngest survivor of Auschwitz, who told me how when the Nazi doctor came along to eliminate the children who were too young, he put stones in his shoes so he'd be tall enough to walk against a bar which the doctor put up so that he would be saved and could go on to work and wouldn't be put into the gas chamber. And this man survived after forced marches out of Auschwitz and he came to Palestine illegally and got in and he went in the other room and came out holding his concentration camp uniform. What's extraordinary, you know, we always see it in black and white and there it is, it's blue and white actually. I held his hat with the Star of David on. Amazing. And I said to him, well, do you know what happened here in Deir Essien? I felt a bit guilty. Here was a guy I'd been through all this. And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, I was here. I was here in Deir Essien when it happened. I was astonished. I mean, there's a journalistic piece of luck for you. And I said, so what happened? He said, well, a lot of it was propaganda. There were some deaths. It's true. And his wife leant forward and she said, Robert, you've got to understand, he went through such suffering that this wasn't as bad. And I hoped upon hope, you see. Here's the nice liberal Bob coming through. I hoped he would say he was a Labour supporter and he, you know. And I said, who are you going to vote for? He said, Sharon's my man. I didn't want him to say that, but he did. And that's, of course, what I quoted him. He's in my book as well. But no, look, I'm not comparing. I think there was ethnic cleansing in 1948, by the way. But I don't believe that what's going on now is directly ethnic cleansing. But the fact is that a Palestinian can be deprived of his land so that another people can come and live on that piece of land that is an immoral act, and it should not be happening. It's against international law. And 
And perhaps not you, but many Israelis whom I meet do agree with me. What's very interesting, by the way, and this is the last comment on this, if you want one more question, you can, it's up to you, is that I, I lecture in the States on average every three and a half weeks, and more than half my lectures are arranged by Jewish Americans. And there's a great change coming now in the Jewish American community over the whole issue of Palestine, not in New York, but across the rest of America, particularly in the West Coast. There's an enormous change. You only have to read Tikkun magazine to see this, in the attitude that there must be a real justice for Palestinians. Only in that way will there be justice and peace for the Israelis, which they deserve and must have. I'm afraid that we are out of time. There are so many of you that would like to ask questions of Robert. It's not possible to go um, around to everyone. Um, but Robert will be signing books in the foyer at the Glee Books table after this so that you can uh, go and have your minute of uh, book signing contact with him. I want to thank you all very much for coming and for your warm response to Robert. I want to thank Robert for taking us on part of the kind of journey he goes on as a journalist and for showing us something of his world. Unfortunately, we haven't found out how it will all end. That's something that we can look at throughout the rest of the year at our following Sydney Ideas lectures. Um, I'd like to encourage you to come and join us to hear from Professor Frank Ferradi at the beginning of April. You'll find also a slip on your seats asking you to join our email list if you're interested in finding out about future events. And if you do that tonight, we'll be offering, uh, putting them in a drawer for, to win a, copy of, a signed copy of uh, Robert's new book. Thank you very much to Robert for coming to talk to us, for travelling this way. Thank you also to our partners in this event, Glee Books. Thank you to Adelaide Festival Writers Week and Samantha Rich and Christine Farmer at HarperCollins. Good night. Between doors one and two for the signing. <laughs>